Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Good to be back with you for another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you to all our repeat listeners. Welcome if this is your first episode. We hope there is information here that you will find useful and interesting stuff that you can apply to your own landscape or even your own garden travels, because we will talk about some exciting gardens you might want to visit if this topic is of interest. I'm Kate Sadler, one of your hosts here at In the Landscape, and I'm in studio with my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. (laughs) Charles Sadler, our resident landscape design expert, which is a title I haven't used in a few episodes, but it's true. So you're the landscape designer. I'm the not landscape designer. (laughs) My background's in the performing arts, but we come together in this little weekly podcast to talk over concepts of design, trends in landscape design, useful tips for even things like pruning with an artistic eye. Mm -hmm. And so today's topic is actually all about designing the garden for children. Mm -hmm. Very near and dear to our hearts. Charles and I uh, share a last name and that's because we are married and we met each other a little late in life. And we uh, had our son through adoption also a little later in life. So Mm -hmm. we have a 16 month old. And in fact, we're here in our home studio this week And we're recording during nap time. (laughs) Part of the challenge of making sure we get the podcast out weekly is finding quiet time to get in the studio. And so we certainly can relate to the challenges of early parenthood. And then I have nieces and nephews, you do, from both sides of our family. And they're in the teen years, which presents a whole other adventure. (laughs) So uh, one of the adventures of childhood that makes it such a rich experience is the connection I think I certainly had as a child in the landscape, you know, connecting to nature and things outside and that magical feel of the seasons, especially in summertime when you get to just be, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no expectations. I guess we experience the world through our senses mm. and being outside, it's quite acute. Mm. You can smell if there's fruit that's fallen and it's you know, more or less like rotting on the ground. It's like a summery, earthy smell. Yeah, being in the landscape, it triggers your senses, brings you into the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, children, in my experience is that they are in the moment, that yes. they're not thinking yeah. of the past or the future much. <laughs> and so when you're outside with a child, it brings the adult into the moment, so the funny, child's yeah. into the moment. And there's, there's so much wonder being by being outside with plants and other things in the landscape. Absolutely. And, and those landscape structures, those organic features like a tree. I mean, we used to gather up the, the dead pine needles and make like birds nests out of them and pretend we were birds. I mean, there's so much that the childhood imagination can make use of in mm-hmm. the landscape to really, you know, make the most of that world. I think our sidewalks, we had a little bit of a hill on one side of the yard. Um, this was growing up in Nevada, California, which is in the Bay Area, which it, has, it can be quite hilly. As the grading moved from one property to the other, there was this little bit of a hillside that led oh. up to the fence. And we would make the sidewalk lava and sort of like <laughs> roll toward the lava and then pull ourselves up by the grass to get to the top. I mean, it was really quite, quite spectacular. So, so with, the, with the children's spaces, 
they don't necessarily need to be that program. You have interesting, beautiful elements in children's imagination, more or less creates the adventure. So I think, so you, mean more, you more or less don't want things that are, are sharp, dangerous, poisonous, toxic. You stay away from those things mm-hmm. and have some sun, some shade, places to sit. More or less children will, will create their own adventure. So having play structures, very elaborate, doesn't mean that it's more successful, actually. It's, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's a little bit like the room, outdoor room episode, where really the key component to whether you're going to use an outdoor room or not, is it in terms of temperature and sun exposure, is it comfortable? And my sense is sometimes play structures are used in the place of plantings. But in and of themselves, although they may create some shade, you know, it's not, it's a little cabin or something on top of a set of swings. Believe me, swings are fantastic and they may get used. But if you just set that out in a very sunny spot, you know, the inside of that little cabin could get quite hot. It's not insulated. (laughs) And so it's actually going to be relatively uncomfortable if plantings are not also a consideration. Right. I mean, that expression like build it and they will come. Plopping a play structure in a landscape, that does not apply. Yeah. I mean, like over the years working in residential uh, landscape design, I mean, it's sort of a tragedy, but many times I've been asked to remove play structures. The children outgrew them. Mm-hmm. And many times they weren't really that used. Mm-hmm. And they had to be you know, taken away and you try to find a home for it, donate it, give it away. But it's, it's this laborious, it's assembled in place. So to get it out of there, you know, a public play structure is a little different because you have you always have an ongoing population of children that are using it. But at, at a single family home, it's different. It's a short period of time that the children are going to be interested in it. So we'll talk a little bit about design principles. You mentioned safety. I do know in the magical garden in Novato, where I grew up at a young age, one of the interesting shapes in the garden was the pyracantha tree which i think had like three inch long spikes i mean that may be my childhood brain sizing it but oh yeah they're okay so they're significant they can be pretty pretty deadly (laughs) and it ended up getting ripped out pretty quickly after we moved in i mean it was not because it was not a safe tree even though it was kind of low to the ground so you could get into the branches i mean you had to tread very carefully i think my parents didn't think it was worth (laughs) keeping in there so We'll talk, you know, of course, about there's part of the magic of gardening for those of us who really love it is the connection to ecology, the ecosystem, the life cycle. And children can really be brought into that world, of course, with things like a vegetable garden or a little little bed that they are um, participating in. Right. And they can see, you know, seeds germinate and sprout, I don't know germination happens inside the seed actually but you see the sprout come up and you certainly witness plants grow and flower and bees come and then you know the flowers no longer have a purpose so they Mm -hmm. die and decompose and you know all of that's a little it's very rich content for children in terms of an educational experience yeah i mean just experiences with growing i mean when you plant seeds some of them thrive some of them don't and, the, and you see, you see the fragility of it. That mm-hmm. there's a hailstorm, or you're a go away on vacation. You don't water. Some of them die. I mean, which is those are all valuable lessons, actually, to you know, for children, for everyone to learn that it's that some of these 
activities that require attention, love, nurture, and that there's sort of acts of God. Sometimes if there's a hailstorm, like you might lose that, that food. We sort of went over the list of really significant gardens and parks that included special uh, landscape elements for children in particular. And I'm curious, I don't know if you know, is this a relatively new trend? To my eye, these gardens look a little bit newer, like they've almost been carved out of these older sort of institutional landscapes. Can you talk a little bit about which landscapes you think are of particular interest and then maybe the trend in designing for children and how that relates to us as adults who are kind of rediscovering the gardens in a way? Okay. Well, there's, I remember my landscape architecture history. I remember some of it, <laughs> to be honest. I know how that goes. So it would be similar to architecture. There was modernism, postmodernism, arts and crafts. With children's play structures and, and children's gardens, there have been those same eras. So people might remember the railroad tie era, where you have these big timbers. There was a playground in Central Park that was pretty recently, it was restored to its original, which might have, I'm going to guess the 50s or 60s, maybe the 70s even. So it was this very modernistic concrete and other elements. So I mean, in terms of comfort, one of the vivid childhood memories I have of some of those parks, I mean, I was going to parks in the 80s and I think maybe you went in the 70s and is the bright metal slide oh, that right. would heat up to like extraordinary <laughs> temperatures and right. sort of blind you and scald you as you went down. So I don't know that, I mean, I would say materials science has had a lot to contribute mm -hmm. to at least the structures that we think of in terms of children's play areas. But as we're going to kind of argue, I guess, as we get going, that it's the organic materials that are the most exciting. And we can make right. we can make much of those in our child-designed landscapes. So the history of there's the different styles and the different materials mm -hmm. through the generations. And then the plastic ones have like build up static electricity. And oh, right. You're, you get a shock or your hair it stands up. I guess what you said about it being like a sensory experience is really true because you have all these like, <laughs> I have all these memories that are sort of popping up. Then there was even a period when I was in graduate school. So, which was like, like about was more than 10 years ago now. And then there was a period of, I don't remember the exact term, but it's more or less like naturalistic play places or elements so you'd have instead of a swing set you'd have three logs and they might be connected laying on the ground and it would encourage you to walk and balance so there's been that trend for a while now so it's a play areas for children that has wonder fascination mm -hmm. intrigue it's interactive but it's not so heavily programmed mm -hmm. that you can only go down a slide one of the features of I don't know, children's psychology. I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't know what this phenomenon is about, but we can certainly talk about it in terms of designing for children is not just the open air structure. So the, the balancing logs or even the swing, but the enclosed structure, the sense that kids like to have little spaces Sure, it goes back to the comfort of the womb. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, one of our favorite parks was in, I think it was Larkspur, California. It was called the Dark Park oh. because it had huge redwoods that just, it was not a bright, sunny park. And so you felt, again, kind of like that magical element 
of being surrounded by this organic, you know, organisms. And it had sort of your basic metal play structure, but there was, it wasn't the sunshine necessarily that was a necessity for that to be an appealing Mm -hmm. space to play and and explore. But that the scale, we always talk about scale, whether that's a big design element, that it's, that it feels comfortable to the human scale. So a little person, a child, their scale is much smaller than an adult. And I love when I visit, you know, preschools or schools or churches or other institutions and, and the do- they have a door that's made for a child only, or there's an adult door and then there's a window at the height of a, of a young child. So play structures, stru- buildings in the landscape that are just for children. And th- I think that is successful. You know, it's, it's really programmed. Like if you said, who's the, who's the client? The client's the child. So, mm-hmm. and children loving some enclosure and plants can also do that. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, it could be a maze, you know, where it's quite designed or just even some enclosure. Children will make a game out of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that elaborate. So I guess my sense would be if I was designing a children's garden right now, thinking a tree is a great play structure for children to climb on. And there's trees that have lower branches. So something like that will invite children to play. And it's when it's not in use, it doesn't look like, oh, this empty play structure that's sitting there. Yeah, scale is so special at that age. And um, we have our son got uh, one of those push little push mowers that makes the bubbles from his nanny. <laughs> and uh, that's your mom. He leaves it out in the lawn. It's like in the middle of the lawn some mornings. <laughs> and he has these little orange garden boots. I mean, he loves being outside and participating in, you in know, the, the landscape. Activity, right? Yeah, of the activity <laughs> of the landscape. But it's the scale of those little objects that he kind of leaves in the yard that, mm-hmm. you know, remind you of the specialness of his playtime and all of that. And the touching. I mean, he loves, we planted a bald cypress and we walk over to that. And we, we touch that and the bark feels different. He loves touching that or the different types of shrub palms with all the foliage. And so some of those have spines closer to the trunk, you know, but just there's like education. This is where you can touch. This is where you can't. So what are some specific garden or park spaces that you found that you think folks maybe should get out and visit if they have the opportunity with their children? Well, we've had the experience, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, they've had, I mean, they're I'm going to guess about 100 years old, maybe a little more now, that property. And they've had... This is the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Right, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. So they've had a children's vegetable or edible garden for, I mean, I believe it was many decades. They've had, it's more recently they have, I guess I'd call it an interactive children's garden that's play, education focused. And that was the firm Michael Van Valkenburg that we visited with, with a summer intern, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that would really follow these design suggestions, which I've read in, in the literature, that it's, there's lots of natural materials. So the, the flooring, the furniture is wood, which is compatible. It feels it's welcoming. It's not cold or there was an overhead canopy. So there was shade. It was comfortable. There was, it was very densely planted, like the surrounding area. So it, it's welcoming. It's interesting. Uh, so that was one that was a highlight. The New York Botanic Garden in the Bronx, they've had a children's garden for many years, and it does have areas with lots of enclosure that's really for a children's 
size scale. Then a couple that I have not been to yet that get uh, rave reviews are the Denver Botanic Garden and the Missouri Botanic Garden. The Denver one appears to be relatively, maybe they've updated or it's recent. And the Missouri, I'm not sure the age of that, but that also looks fantastic. For those listeners who, you know, want to go, I did say going with your children, but of course there's the inner child that, that all of this sort of talk almost inspires that sense of, mm-hmm. of certainly my own childhood and the excitement that, ca- that we still can feel as adults if we grant ourselves permission, I guess, to kind of experience the landscape in that way, the touching, you know, the smelling um, I'm, I'm mindful that a lot of these gardens have elements that would invite wildlife, you know, mm-hmm. safe wildlife, I right. guess, uh, you know, we have to watch <laughs> out for anything that's not, but, you know, something simple like butterfly milkweed for butterflies so that children can observe. We would get, what is it called? Swallowtail butterflies. Oh, They're yellow with the distinctive pretty. wings and they make their cocoon. They eat and then make the cocoon on Fennel, I think. Oh, I remember you saying that. And I'm familiar with that. And that sounds and, right. And so there's there's the distinctive smell. There's observing the life cycle of the caterpillar and the butterfly. And, and so all of that is stuff that we can be mindful of as we're planning the garden for our children or ourselves as children. That's <laughs> right. We want to think along those lines. Yeah, that, that same summer intern, Andrew, visiting children's gardens, like we went to both. NYBG and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Mm. I mean, he was he gravitated toward that. So it's it's all your state of mind. It's like mm. you can be young at heart. The elements that appeal to children. Now, there's also when we went to there was a section of the Brooklyn. Is it the waterfront? Waterfront Park, I think. Yeah, um, uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, Brooklyn Bridge Park. That it was like closer to Atlantic Avenue, which was adjacent to the water mm-hmm. and we went to that had many nooks and crannies enclosures more or less there were tunnels created by plants mm-hmm. and there was a mist element and you walked into it and there were children running you know back and forth underneath you almost like like uh it created a very animated exciting space that's so true and you know i mean a few of these concepts i do think apply for those of us for whom our pets are our children. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Hudson, our younger cocker spaniel, loves the nooks and crannies of the yard. She really right. she'll sort of get into the spaces. Our, our cat, Mittens, likes to have plants to sort of hide behind. She's not outdoors too often. We hope she's not. I don't think she's ever hurt a bird. I know that can be an issue. But um, anyway, the idea that you, you are planning for safety. So there are things that the, you don't want your children to eat. You don't want your pets to eat. And then a, an ability to kind of feel a part of the landscape, to sort of mm-hmm. hide and get into it in a way so that you can kind of lose yourself into it when you're at a certain size. Well, plants like our New York townhouse garden, foliage plants. So mm-hmm. perennials, we used there, we used Amsonia quite a bit. We used mm-hmm. boxwood and then many flowering shrubs. So those are all quite compatible. You can make your way through them like a maze, even though they probably would vary in height from like 30 inches you know, to waist height. And then the shrubs were about six feet tall. And so that created like a labyrinth, more or less. And there was a lot of motion in that garden, which was nice. And we've had, of course, in researching this or, or certainly, I mean, one of the techniques used to create a space is to do the sunflower room. 
but but that's somewhat static. I mean, once it's there, it's it's very firm, mm-hmm. which is nice. Which is um, maybe just you, to explain that would be, it could be a circle, a square, where you, it's the shape is lined with sunflowers, mm-hmm. and then as they grow up, it creates an interior space, which children children like interiors. I mean, mm-hmm. and and so do adults. I was just thinking corn has that effect, but the leaves are not, it's not comfortable. Like if you kind of brush up against uh, it. So I do, you know, in thinking of the Amsonia, for example, it's a very soft kind of feel and has mm-hmm. that kind of waviness. So kind of moving through it in the labyrinth context is actually appealing. But the, the idea that not every plant kind of has a nice feel to it is whether it's dangerous or not. I mean, that's something else to consider. It's and then the it's softness. That is durable grass. too. Like, oh yeah. And Sonia, a dog can more or less fall into it. A children could fall down on it. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's durable. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the, the, the stems would break. It's not a fragile plant. That's really a, a component that it's not going to hurt the child or, and then, more or less that that the child's not going to hurt it or mm. that it can stand up to it mm-hmm. or something like a very fragile, like a dwarf rhododendron or some of these plants that grow slowly. If you broke a third of the branches, it might never recover. It might look like that. <laughs> so that wouldn't be a good choice for an area where there's young children. That's a good point. Also, mobility is an issue for young children. We Grading... Well, and I'm also thinking of our soil episode where we did talk about not wanting to compact the soil. Mm. So providing paths that are sort of baked into the, pro- like, we don't want to over-program it so that children have that sense of recreating in their minds afresh every time they're in the landscape, something imaginative, but providing stepping stones. Those can be very appealing and that can be protective of kind of the root systems. But what about things like gravel? I mean, do children do well on, you know, Daniel just kind of goes from the concrete to the grass. And even that transition mm-hmm. was a challenge for a little bit, but he's very mobile. So he's yeah, the, running the, right around. If it's a step, that it's very apparent that it's a step. Mm. I mean, that kind of actually happens with people at the end. As with dementia or as we age, our perception of depth and shadows, it can be hard to read it. I'm guessing it'd be the same for children. So if it's a step, that it's very obvious that it's a step. Or if you have, let's say, bluestone steps, which are the same color, and if the lighting's, if it's not, if there's not a shadow, it can be hard to perceive. So either having things that are flush, I know children and actually pets like to put things in their mouth. So gravel, the finer, the pea stone, that's quite nice. That could get distributed everywhere. (laughs) You know, I know dogs eat that, children could eat that. Mm-hmm. So thinking if a path is needed, I would agree that it's more or less the elderly and children, both smooth paving services. So it's like minimize steps, make it very clear where you're going, mm-hmm. that there's not discrepancies, and that it's predictable if there's steps. You don't want to have a single step usually. It's better to have like ideally like three steps. A single step you could, I mean, I've done that. You're walking along, you don't expect it, and you and you trip. Yes, yeah. I've experienced that too. That makes me think that perhaps being creative with handholds, like mm. especially if it is an organic, you know, item that if it happens to be near where stepping is happening that children especially are are liable to reach out and hold on to things. So you may want something like a container 
as the support as opposed to a shrub itself because that mm-hmm. could, could face something. Having railings, yeah. having a railing, that's the height of a child. It could be a double, you mm-hmm. know, like a, yeah. there's probably, I haven't come across it, but I bet there's guidelines for railings for a child height. Well, and uh, you mentioned the gravel, which makes me think also of beautiful beds that are mulched. Oh, <laughs> right. just think, oh, <laughs> that you do not want mulch everywhere either. So you may want to consider we're, we're kind of proponents of, you know, ground cover anyway that fills mm-hmm. in and helps keep the weeds at bay. If you can get that established, then you don't have to do as much weeding or mulching. Right. So if you can find and one of Again, childhood memories, uh, one of my favorites, and I don't, I honestly don't know what the scientific name is, but it grew like crazy in the kind of cool sort of wet Bay Area climate and baby tears. They're like oh, these okay. tiny little leaves that, and very green oh, and kind can, of I think pillowy. I can picture that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the scientific name, but. And they would be, again, speaking of scale, you could play in the beds with your little figurines and somehow it was like the right scale for their world. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was all very, very entertaining. But those ground covers can be a really special, it's at the right level for children. Mm -hmm. There's some flower also that's like little and white and it almost looks like it's its own bouquet of flowers. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's not coming to mind. Right. There's a, a dianthus. That's one. I'm not sure if that's what you mean, but yeah. So having, I mean, from getting into the colors, bold colors, groups of colors, more or less like massing plantings. That's what the like the literature says more or less that that that's appealing to children. It's appealing to adults too. So you can perceive an area like a large swath of uh, black-eyed susans, let's say, would be an example. Things that are nice to that are nice to touch. Herbs that, that are aromatic. So when you brush up against them or plants it that like when I've, when I've been doing landscape consultations at a nursery or other places, I always try to seek out plants that the children can touch and encourage them touch this with the rosemary, the different kinds of mint. So instead of saying don't touch, trying to design for do touch. Mm, that's great. And maybe also considering the, as we look out the windows and we're assessing our design to if there's if there is a children's bedroom and you want to make something special for them to whether it's with a professional designer who's consulting with you or you're thinking of it yourself take in that view maybe Mm -hmm. your children for whatever reason have a view of the back fence and then the neighbor's yard (laughs) it's just not you know it may not be appealing and yet there's so much kind of soothing and comforting psychological benefit that we get when we have nice things to look at having your child's view which they may see as they're doing homework or just spending time in their room would be something to consider right to attract not to leave them birds out. pollinators yeah and that things that are seasonal that's i know children that's enjoyable to everybody and that flowers and it maybe develops berries and it loses its leaves yeah So you found some resources in preparing for this episode that relate to actually gardens in children's health care. We're working on a whole health care episode. The health care garden is hugely beneficial. Um, There's some exciting developments in that arena, and it applies to all of us as we'll all go through changes in health status over our lifetimes. But in terms of children and children's hospital gardens, what, what were you able to find out? Well, let's see. This one, uh, this is from the Journal of Environmental Psychology, which I'm familiar with. It's 
titled Evaluating a Children's Hospital Garden Environment, Utilization and Consumer Satisfaction. And this is a San Diego Children's Hospital. And so they did what's called a post-occupancy evaluation, where they, this garden was built, and then after a period of time, they evaluate what's working, what's not working. So some of the key, and I think this could apply to the residential garden too, mm-hmm. many of the hospital occupants, the parents and the staff, they didn't know that, that, that the garden existed. Mm-hmm. So when you're designing a garden, making it easy to get to, and awareness. So if you can see the garden from your, from your back porch, I guess so it's, it's integrated and it's programmed into your, into your lifestyle is important. So, so it's used <laughs> and that there's awareness of, of where it is. Other suggestions from the users was the children gardens often have lots of hardscaping, lots of built structures, which people and children don't tend, it's, it's not welcoming. So the suggestion was to have more greenery, more trees and shrubs. Then the third suggestion was more things for kids to do. So pouring water, there's water tables, there's like a sandboxes, sand tables. It doesn't have to be that complicated or sophisticated, but just activities for children. I do know sandboxes are a challenge because of wildlife and the tendency to want to use them as a restroom. So get the one that has the cover if right. you're going to use it. And <laughs> That's pretty much standard these days if you don't install it yourself. But if you do install it yourself, you'll have to be careful about that. And then, and then the next one. Okay, the next article was, was from uh, Warsaw University of Technology in Poland and the Faculty of Architecture. The author was, I'm going to do my best, Waronika Katarina Lipka. And so the article is multi-sensory architecture, filling the space by the disabled children on the example of educational therapeutic and rehabilitation center. So the, the uh, takeaways that I thought were valuable there, this was the design of a children's garden in an existing larger landscape. And so that would be true, whether it's a public park or at your own home, the children's garden should fit and should be respectful of the surrounding landscape. So it doesn't look like it was just plopped down and it doesn't make sense. It should be integrated in a design sense, which is, it'll, look prettier it'll be utilized and it'll have like a lifespan it won't look outdated after a period of time let's see i mean and the key takeaway is which i really agree with when design says when designing for children the garden ought to support their development so that's really the program is it educational inspiring intriguing does it create wonder so those are all like we talked about plants blooming plants moving in the wind, growing edible plants, those, those would all fall into that. Certainly, accessibility is a concern for many parents who have children with you know, differing abilities. And if we are designing for professionals listening to this podcast, designing for parks or gardens, um, it's important to know those standards. We are planning an episode on accessibility in the garden. Um, mm-hmm. And so we hope to put together some you know, a discussion of the topics of universal design, which is to make it sort of open to everyone with the least amount of um, barriers. Barriers, really. Yeah, like it's not obvious that things are designed just to allow all human beings to use them equally. And if it is a, a unique challenge to you and your family, there will be designers out there who could help. So if you're not quite sure what to do with your garden to help make it, you know, accessible to all your children, then maybe seek out a designer and get kind of the insights into universal design, which 
could benefit. Or again, if there's a room in particular that the child's looking out of a, a significant period of time, you know, making that a special view or mm-hmm. something like that. It's nice to be able to kind of bring everybody into the landscape. Right. And the, and the, the lessons learned from, from public landscapes that are accessible with people with varying uh, mobility, those same lessons could be applied to the residential landscape. And th- those are quite well documented in American Institute of Architects, American Society of Landscape Architects. There are lots of precedents. And so a designer could tap into that and they could more or less follow like a route to success. <laughs> Anything else to add this episode? Oh, let's see. As nap time winds down to a close. <laughs> <laughs> I was like to encourage four season interest. Now that's always great. And maybe a, a parting visual would be to create a, like a teepee or like a tent-like structure that came up repeatedly where whether out of bamboo poles or other wooden structures, creating a, a cone that would be five, six, seven, eight feet tall. And then there's, you're, you're by default creating an interior space and creating a lattice with twine and growing edibles, beans, or other things over there. So you create a play place for the child underneath it and it's seasonal so in the winter it's depending on the climate it's more or less just the structure and then the the climbers over the course of the season grow up and then they can be harvested well and depending on the development and the age of your child construction projects in the landscape are also fun if you Mm -hmm. create a birdhouse together and then the child can observe birds visiting that or this structure in particular having (laughs) Having even little hands help hold up the sticks as you bind them together is a nice way to allow children participation in Mm -hmm. the creation of their own space. That's right. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. And we're looking forward to having a few other great topics coming out for you in the next few weeks. And we're always excited to hear feedback. Stay tuned at the end for our email address and information about the show. Mm -hmm. If you have anything you'd like to add, we always welcome questions And we're looking forward to our next topic in the landscape. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at King.com gardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.